Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 171. Last episode we had was with Stevie Nichol, European Cup winner. So for a football fan, that was quite exciting. Um, some of you have been asking, I'm filming this before I've recorded that episode, but some of you have been asking how I managed to get in touch with him. It's not like I've got ties to the MLS or anything like that. Um, I actually, our family sold a sheep to his twin sister. We know his twin sister very well, so uh, yeah, she's from Aaron. Um, so that's how that came about. The next episode we have after today is a first for the podcast. Um, it will be the first time we've ever brought someone on the food and farming as an individual twice. Sophie Aplin is coming on, um, Sophie Gregory, and she goes by both on Instagram. I never know which one to go with uh, as uh, the, what's her name? Laura, what's her name on Instagram? Can you remember? Yeah. Farmer and training. training. Farmer and training. Sophie, I'm so sorry. Uh, feel free to shout at me. Um, Sophie came on, I think it was episode 108. Um, but now, as part of this year's Nuffield cohort, she is a record breaker in the R2 cast. So that's quite fun. And uh, today, again, another Nuffield um, member. We must be getting near there. I think we've got five or six to go. Um, uh, hopefully get everyone on. Not saying well. We also did the episode with me if you want to go and put your ears through pain. Uh, that is an option too if you want to listen to my episode as well. Uh, but today's episode is with Laura Audrey. Laura, would you like to say hello? Hi, how are you? Just before we get started with another episode of the R2 cast, I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, formerly known as A-Plan Rural. Howden are heavily involved in the social media scene in the ag space with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories, as well as posting to their rural community blog with further articles about these people in the sector. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Howden Rural for that. Very good to yourself. Maybe feeling a bit better than you at the minute. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that time of the year. I think we've all pushed ourselves quite hard and it sort of catches up, doesn't it? So yeah. the minute you stop, you're in the back. It's how it works. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Christmas time comes, you're like, oh, it'll be such a nice time of year. And you're just ill the whole time. Um, yeah, always a joy. Always a joy. Uh, Laura, it's always quite good at the start. Could you give listeners a bit of a, a bit of background, I guess, to, to who, who Laura Audrey is? Oh, yeah, I think when they asked me that in the interview, I said you might need a bit longer than 20 minutes for me to go through that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess you can tell by the accent, obviously not originally from the UK. I've got a slight Antipodean twang. Uh, don't be fooled. I've had, I have been here for 16 years. I'm just really stubborn and decided not to lose the accent. So, <laughs> um, yeah, originally from New Zealand. Uh, first came over here in 2008. Um, had, obviously... Didn't really know what to do at university, wanted to do about 50 different degrees, so did what most Kiwis do and decided to do the, the big OE, we call it, um, which generally just involves going to England and going to London and getting drunk for two years. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, mine sort of didn't quite happen that way. I um, ended up meeting my husband while travelling and, yeah, literally about two weeks before I think I was about to hop on a plane uh, and he was going off to Thailand, found out I was pregnant, so um massive big sort of life-changing experience happens there uh so yeah moved over to the UK um ended up married had a family um and my background originally I suppose I was brought up in Canterbury New Zealand um a small town called Methven and I'm actually from a deer farm so nothing to do with sheep or cows or anything to do with my topic and what I do now um but yeah dad dad sort of went into the deer farming industry back in uh, the 80s. Um, I did suggest we could potentially follow suit over in the UK, but it's not sort of such an established industry over here. So um, my husband's family farm, uh, they were sort of traditional arable, uh, beef, a bit of contracting. And obviously now we have our own farm. We are down in Cornwall and we've taken on a Duchy of Cornwall tenancy where we have arable, beef, and I run a calf growing unit as well. Excellent. And uh, did, did the Thailand trip happen or did other things have to take priority? <laughs> no, I think other things definitely take it. It's amazing finding out that you're going to be a parent, how that completely throws your plans on, on their head, I think. So, um, yeah, no, I think maybe one day we might get there, but it might be a case of we'll be those 50-year-olds going with our 20-year-old children or something. So <laughs> <laughs> it's never off the cards, though. <laughs> 
the fifty year old white folk with dreadlocks doing the bad pack at the bad pack <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, good. Um the so did you call it big OE? Is that what you said? Yeah, so yeah, we call it a big OE, um, overseas experience. So Ah, okay, right. Being, yeah. Being I think that's kind of standard in New Zealand. You sort of either go straight to university or a lot of us go travelling because at the end of the day we are miles away from anywhere. Uh, and especially if you're quite rural in New Zealand as well, all you want to do is either, you know, farm and stay there or you just want to get out and see the world. So um, most of my friends and, you know, others have done the same. They'll sort of come over, travel for a couple of years. Um, and I suppose being in New Zealand, a lot of us have probably got um, relatives, like and you can get ancestry um, visas as well. So if you've got grandparents that are over in the UK. So you know, I've had a few friends exploit that and be able to stay for about five years. Um, but quite often, yeah, we come over, do a bit of traveling, see the world and then decide to grow up and, and go back to New Zealand and, uh, yeah, just decide what we're going to do. Or in you guys' case, when they be forced to grow up. You have to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just doing it. Just You just do it differently, I think. That's why I, I like to sit there and kind of think, yeah, life doesn't always go to plan. You just sort of have to, yeah, use the cards you've been dealt, I guess, and Oh, definitely not. <laughs> Absolutely not bad cards at all, though. Um, could you tell us a bit about deer farming? You said, you know, not as established over here, which you know, we know it's not established here, but is it, is it quite established in New Zealand? Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite a big industry back home. I think New Zealand's probably the biggest producer of farm venison in the world, I would imagine. I Don't quote me on that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it started probably in the 60s. They were doing a lot of um, processing, so deer aren't so a little fact about New Zealand, there are actually no native mammals. So New Zealand only has birds um, and sort of uh, reptiles. There were no mammals. So when obviously settlers came over, they brought things like rats, ferrets, stoats, but they also brought livestock and, and deer. So a huge amount of New Zealand's sort of bird life actually became flightless because there were no predators. So they didn't have to you know, fly to get away. So, um, yeah, really sort of dense bush and obviously great habitat for, for deer to obviously be released in. Uh, so they were brought over and they just sort of bred and kind of got out of control and became a pest. So the government sort of brought in this whole policy of culling and obviously that turned into a way to make money. So uh, they started processing the venison and selling it. But then they kind of really quickly realised that it was inconsistent. Obviously, it's wild. It varies in size. You know, you get small ones, big ones. And in terms of when you could get it, it was quite seasonal. So I think in about the 70s, they actually got like a permit and started farming. So instead of going out shooting them, they were actually going out and live capturing. So my dad used to uh, fly with um, some of the crews and they would literally be net gunning wild deer off helicopters and sort of capturing them in. And, um, and that's how they kind of started the first kind of commercial deer farms in New Zealand. So um, there's, you know, I would say it's a, it's a pretty big industry. Uh, it's had its peaks and troughs, I think, over the years, like most farming. Um, a lot of, I guess, what we can do in New Zealand is we are allowed to velvet the stags, which you can't obviously legally do here in the UK. And sort of uh, deer velvet's huge in pharmaceuticals. So chances are, if you have a dog that has arthritis and you look at some of those sort of um, things that you're giving your dog potentially from the vets, they will have deer, deer antler in it. It's, it's sort of hugely used within sort of um, Chinese and South Korean medicine. So really big export market for that alongside obviously the meat, meat as well. I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information about our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. Howden Rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. Be sure to check out Howden Rural today. Uh, for, for those listening, we're, we're filming this just before Christmas at the minute and uh, my mum and dad have asked Yasmin and I to make some questions for a little family quiz. Um, and I'm going to try and turn that mammal one into a question because I did not know that. That is a, that's, a <laughs> one. that's a great fun fact. Um, yeah. Well, it's 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 good, but it's yeah, it's proved its challenges. I think having a whole lot of flightless birds in a country that basically everything got introduced that wants to eat them. So <laughs> the government's had quite a yeah, a lot of a lot of challenges over the years. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I'm gonna completely out myself here as someone that knows nothing about it. What does velveting involve? <laughs> 
so obviously within the life cycle, um, a male male deer obviously will grow its its velvet. So very early in the season, that really fluffy kind of um, furry stuff they start to grow before they develop their antler. Um, it's really, you know, the blood supply there obviously helps that grow. And before it turns into that hard calcareous sort of antler, when they've shredded it off, that is removed. Um, you basically give them an anaesthetic and put them into a squeeze crush and you cut that off. And that is freeze dried straight away um, into sort of big chillers and gets shipped over for processing. Um, whereas legally, I think in the UK, you can't do that, but you still have to remove the antler. So they would naturally, um, if you left the velvet on, they will cast their own antlers. You, you'd see in the wild, obviously. Um, I'm not sure of the rules in the UK. I think you've got to remove them from memory. You've got to, to remove the hard antler um, as it poses a health risk uh, to people. I don't know if there's lots of listeners laughing at me for that question, but I hope there's at least <laughs> someone that will. <laughs> no, I, I get that question a lot, actually, about what is velvet on a deer. So, yeah, well, I, 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 know, I know where the velvet on a deer was. I just didn't know that how the process happened. Yeah, I did know that, in fairness, in my defence. What I didn't know, speaking of velvet, was one of my colleagues brought in a, a velvetizer hot chocolate machine. It makes it all, it feels like velvet. It's very fluffy. It's very nice. I did not expect to be talking about hot chocolate here, but that seems to be Oh, nice. no, honestly, I am, um, yeah, speaking of hot chocolate, I may have succumbed to the velvetizer trends and we we went to Hotel Chocolat. There are other velvetizers available, but yeah, that was a Christmas present from my husband last year. Well, I was unaware, <laughs> I was unaware of any other uh, chocolate velvetizers available because the one that we used was a Hotel Chocolat one. And fun fact, this is a really random one, but we're going to go with it anyway because I seem to have absolutely no rules on what we talk about in the podcast now. Um, I, at the time of this being released, will have done this, hopefully successfully, and currently, um, in the last maybe six or seven rehearsals, to play a Candy King on stage... <laughs> I'm the main part in a, a, a young farmer's concert and my life basically revolves around finding a job at Hotel Chocolat on Quality Street. <laughs> oh, my. oh, where do I sign up to see this? <laughs> well, it's here. Fly on up to Dumfries on the thirteenth and the 12th and 13th of January. Feel free to watch an idiot with a beard make a fool of himself. Um, but yeah, from deer to chocolate on stage. Who knew? Who knew? Um, so you find yourself over in the UK, uh, Laura, and uh, were, you, were you sort of, you met your partner, I've completely forgotten his name, sorry. Uh, Sam? Sam, you were close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was like, I didn't want to say the wrong name, that would be really awkward. Uh, were, were, did you sort of jump into the farm life straight away over here, or, or how did that sort of come about? Um, it was really challenging, I suppose, because I, I was still young. I was sort of 19 when I got pregnant, 20 when I came over here the first time, and um, you've got a young kid and all I thought to myself was I'll just get stuck in on the farm because it was like a safety mechanism. You've come to a different country, you're in a circumstance, you're not, well, I shouldn't say you don't want to find yourself in, but you're in it. Um, so you want to make the best of it. So I just wanted to sort of help out. But, it, you know, being a large arable contracting business, there wasn't a huge amount that I could do in terms of um, sort of, yeah, helping out in the family farm business. And I was really fortunate that a friend through Young Farmers um, she at the time worked for a contract car frame company. And so she was just like, oh, hang on a minute. I might be able to help you out here. Um, and she suggested that I started car frame. So we kind of proposed to my father-in-law, could I rent a, a building on the farm, basically? Uh, you know, I think originally he always said this. He goes, oh, I just thought you'd do it for a year and I have it back, basically. And sort of 12 <laughs> years later, there's still blooming calves in there. Um, but no, rented a shed off him. Uh, we went in and sort of got a, an automatic milk machine and started sort of calf rearing batches of 100 calves at a time because it was something I could do on the farm and have a small baby and small children. Uh, and, you know, because childcare is pretty difficult when you're young and you're on the other side of the world, you haven't really got, you haven't got family to sort of help out. And I guess because we were so young when we had kids, Sam's parents were still you know, in their mid forties, um, working. So you can't really ask family to help you out. So, um, yeah, no, I, I raised children, I think in that car, you know, I had a wooden play pen that I used to wedge between two milk pellets. Um, and they just had to kind of grow up watching me work on the farm, but that gave me, I suppose that sense of, I could still work, have a bit of independence. And I guess for me, it was a huge learning curve because coming from New Zealand, I had no experience in cattle, um, no experience in sort of the dairy side of things either uh, and calf rearing 
I had some experience in because obviously I had friends who were dairy farming and, you know, if you stayed the night, it was just guaranteed you had to go work the next day and help them feed, feed calves on the farm. But again, very different system. It's all outdoors. Uh, and I suppose the thought of rearing calves indoors was a, a real novel concept to me. So it was, it was quite a big learning experience. But in some respects, it's probably helped me shape, shape where I've gotten today by sort of getting my foot in the door in that industry. So a, a calf and kid reading shed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, I was in, I, yeah, the joke was I nearly gave birth to my second one in the shed. I was, um, I was vaccinating a pair of calves because I went to labour and I knew that I needed to give them a vaccine. Um, they, they get a pneumonia vaccine. And I remember my husband was off bailing somewhere and I'd message saying, I'm in labour, you better come home. Uh, so I got my brother-in-law to come round and he was he was in a right old flat, you know, counting contractions, saying, I think you need to go to the hospital. And I said, I think I need to finish vaccinating this pen at carbs first. So, um, yeah, she was born about three hours later. So it was, it was pretty, pretty close. <laughs> I can, you know, you mentioned you were stubborn about keeping the accent. It seems to not stop at that. Uh... No, pretty stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> I know a few folk like that. And you're like, you're just, you know what? Might as well let her finish the vaccinating because she's not going to leave until it's done. <laughs> uh, but so started reading a hundred calves. That's not the sort of numbers I thought you were going to talk about starting with. Is that is that the sort of same size you're at now, or have you grown over time with that? Um, yeah, well, so I suppose it was a hundred at a time. So we were operating through the company we were rearing for. Uh, it was an all-in, all-out system. So in terms of sort of protocols and biosecurity making sure that you're blocking and rearing all your calves all in one go you sort of minimize any disease risk uh and obviously we've carried that on what we do now we sort of rear about well i think this year nearly 600 but between five 600 calves um and we kind of i think we've learned over the years as we've evolved the business uh we just sort of instead of rearing all year round we now just uh, do block block rearing so we work specifically with block calving dairy farms and try and single source all the calves over sort of a two well I suppose two month period really sort of eight eight to ten weeks um and that just gives us a bit more time I think to obviously be able to fit everything else and you know you're you're sort of doing them all at one period if that makes sense um you're lumping your labor together and I think you can minimize other things like disease pressure as well so yeah and do you mean you take them at two months or you have them for two months I we should... have them so we would um with a sad dairy calf calf so we, we're actually we actually have sucklers as well so I have we have two different types of beef on our farm so we are suckler farmers as well uh, but I suppose I should probably explain yeah dairy beef so um obviously with a suckler cow it's a case of she's born and, and had that calf and rears that calf whereas the dairy beef system that we run uh, we are getting calves at sort of probably 10 days two weeks old from a dairy farm and we take those calves through until they're weaned and that would probably be about sort of three months and then we keep a portion for ourselves which we obviously run on and finish um, on the farm and then we've got sort of private private buyers that sort of buy 40 or 50 at a time and they will obviously take those through as well so uh, we sort of yeah we take the calves from those dairy farms over their calving period most most dairy farms block calvers in particular would be aiming for quite a tight sort of nine to 12 week block. Um, the first few weeks of calving is generally always going to be their heifer replacements and then they move on to the beef breeds. And we obviously aim for that sort of that tail end, I suppose, of all the beef breeds and then take those on. So uh, we would normally have those calves on farm for, yeah, sort of three, three and a half, four months at any time. Okay. And that's that's obviously what sort of a lot of your Nuffield is, is focusing on, which, which we'll get to. Um, but could you tell us just before... Uh, we get to that that sort of the the calf reading side. What what's the sort of rest of the farm look like? Is it did did uh, did yourself and Sam take over the Duchy estate tenancy when you were together, or was that already in place from his parents? No, so um, yeah, we left the family farm, um, which isn't any easy task um, for anyone who's ever been in that situation. Um, we yeah, so we'd been on the family farm in Wiltshire, so we've since I've been here I've been living in Wiltshire and then in 2021 I'm trying to think now gosh years have rolled by um because it's been quite a long winded process of getting here actually we viewed the, we saw the tenancy available in 2021 that summer in June um hilariously saw the farmers weekly advert realized the viewing day was two days later so somehow had to figure out how to 
sneak away to Cornwall, which is three, three and a half hours away to go view a farm and get back in time <laughs> before anyone realised. Um, so we viewed the farm because we kind of knew, I think, just in terms of staying on the family business, where we wanted to go in terms of farming. Um, we like things with four legs, not four wheels. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that contracting Laurie Haulage, arable side of, of his family's business was something we kind of saw ourselves doing. And equally, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you feel indebted, do you stay with your family business? Uh, but you don't want to end up being 50 and feel really, well, I, I don't, yeah, cynical or, or regret. You don't want to have regrets, do you? So we kind of decided that we needed to be making a decision for ourselves. Um, went and viewed the tenancy. It did need a lot of work. Um, and we were, we were aware of that, but we still put the tender in. And I think we were still umming and ahhing up to the day of the, the day we had to put the tender in. And the funny story behind that was we hadn't actually read the small print and instead of emailing all your files and documents over, you had to deliver them by 12 p.m. to the head office. So <laughs> we were up till, I think, Sam stayed up till one and then went to bed. I stayed up till four finishing all the covering letters and he got up at six and drove down to try and drop all the paperwork off because we, you know, so I will say this, read the small print, guys, because it might might throw a surprise <laughs> Um So, yeah, we put the, put the tenancy in. Um, to be fair, we were we were so shocked when we got the call back for the first round. Um, had a team a teams interview and then sort of progressed from there. They came out to view us and our farm, uh, and then we got offered the tenancy. Um, I think it was October twenty one, and I feel terrible because the day we got the phone call, I wasn't even home. I was on a course for three days, the Tesco Future <laughs> Farm course. So poor Sam got this news, had to ring me, and we were kind of I was in I think. Gosh, where was I? I was in crew and he was back in Wiltshire. So, you know, it was it was fantastic news, but we couldn't celebrate until yeah. um until I got back. Um and then timescale wise, obviously we got off the tenancy in October twenty-one. We weren't able to move down until September twenty-two. Um we weren't the, the farmhouse had to be completely re renovated, so we had to go live in a holiday let. So we moved down into a holiday let. Um but we were still farming the farm and we moved into the farmhouse may this year so it's been quite a long process from i think yeah getting a tenancy in october 21 to sort of actually physically moving into the farmhouse in in may 23 so it's been yeah it's been a few years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so um farm at the moment um it's a really nice mixed farm it's sort of 334 acres um it's it's you know we're really lucky actually and i know this doesn't happen all the time, but the outgoing tenants, um, they just didn't have anybody. They had an agricultural um, an AHA tenancy, so obviously it's generational, but there, there basically wasn't another generation to take on the farm, so they had to make that decision to obviously relinquish the tenancy. Um, and we actually live, they live just down the road from us, which I know some people would say, oh, that's got to be, you know, quite awkward having, the, you know, the previous family and tenant living next door but you know they're the most lovely couple and their family is just so nice and their grandkids go to the same school as our grandkids and you never know when you need to ring them up and ask them where's the water pipe that you put in and that field sort of 20 years ago so um but he yeah predominantly had been arable they had some beef and sheep got rid of the sheep um quite a lot of potatoes and veg um we've tried to grass it all down still doing a small amount of arable and we are just sort of um we've, we've probably put in about 150 acres with a herbal lays and we're just running sort of a predominantly grazing grazing based system so it is currently blowing a hooli outside and raining but um due to the sort of i suppose the topography we're actually able to outwinter on this farm so completely different than wiltshire um we're really lucky actually here so we're able to sort of i think farm in that way that we were looking to progress so do you not have anything inside over the winter time uh, yeah, we've got the young stock, so uh, we would have cow cows and calves have just been weaned. Cows are back out though, so we've shifted the calving pattern. So eventually, they will probably never be housed, and hopefully, just calves sort of march onwards and stay out, which would be quite nice because that is your biggest cost as a suckling yeah. producer is that housing period. Uh, so if we can manage to sort of outwinter the cows on that sort of more marginal um, permanent pasture ground, you know, at the end of the day, that that can be your shed, if that makes sense, um, and being able to sort of outwinter that way. Um, the growing stock at the moment, they are all outwintered as well. They sort of go out, um, 
these are autumn sort of born calves so they had their first winter indoors and then obviously we turned them out in the spring and march and we're able to run them through on cover crops and then they finish on herbal lays in the summer uh, and then realistically it's just sort of those young young calves any of the dairy young sort of young stock from spring born um, but again we've only been here sort of gosh 13 14 months so it's all like a massive learning curve at the moment and what I'm saying now in two years time I might be like oh, God, why was you doing it that way you could do this so um, I think yeah farming is just always an evolving process and I think until you get to learn a farm or the landscape you, you're always going to be making changes aren't you well no that's it that's it and I mean when you said it was a long process the tenancy you said you heard about it in June and then you sort of fast forwarded to October and I'm like, how quick did you expect this to be? Four months is fine. And then you're like, no, that was the start. I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> and, and you said about the, the weather there. It, it's funny. Um, like I'm from Arran, which is about 70 miles from where I live uh, in Dumfries. And we, we honestly don't have a gust of wind at the minute, but the speeds are like 60 miles an hour back home. You guys have clearly got it. Just south of here has got it about 20 miles east of us has got it as well I don't, I don't know why we haven't today i don't know what's happening but um yeah it seems pretty rough down here at the minute like it seems yeah. like, um it is, it is, um well cornwall's known for its breeze i think he was for all the giant wind turbines everywhere so <laughs> yeah true true where, where in cornwall are you actually because I, I, I we used to holiday in cornwall quite a bit oh well no i'm in the boring middle no man's land um yeah, I think when people think of Cornwall, they think of all the coastal lovely beaches and things like that. So we are sort of just north of Truro, so mid-Cornwall, um, so just off the A30. And I'm sure if people travel down frequently, it's, the, the services, there's a big Cornwall services, and then there's another one, and we call it Hamburger Hill because there's a McDonald's on it and there's a hill. Yeah. So <laughs> if you get off at the junction there um, and head off towards sort of Porthcatho, uh, we're about five minutes off the A30 there, so yeah, Hamburger was, Hill Junction. It was Wade Bridge we used to go to when I was younger. Uh, yeah, yeah, lovely yeah. over there. Yeah, nice bit. Yeah, there was a little, uh, there was a little, um, a little village called Chapel Amble, which is where we stayed, and it was a farm diversification with B and Bs, and there was this lady that ran the farm, uh, not sorry, that ran the 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 shop in Chapel Amble, and she'd be eighty and like sort of a typical eighty year old woman, quite short nice really sweet and all this sort of thing and then one day she had to go outside with us just to show us and she put on her jacket and it was like a proper hell's angels leather jacket i was like brilliant <laughs> absolutely fantastic like well i probably didn't appreciate it at the time i was a kid mom and dad tell me i think it's a brilliant story um but no i absolutely love cornwall so yeah so in recent years well recent months i guess really laura throughout all the tenancy stuff and moving into a new house and farming with wee ones and all this stuff um uh you chose to do Nuffield why <laughs> um gosh well I, I suppose I'd always been aware of it and um one of our old customers actually in Wiltshire um we did contracting for he's a dairy farmer David Hallier so I'd been aware of his Nuffield back in 2012 and that was kind of quite inspiring because he was also like a tenant farmer who'd sort of um looked at sort of large-scale dairy opportunities and and how we'd grown as business and I'd always so I'd always been aware of it from then and I don't know if it's that whole oh yeah maybe you have a chip on your shoulder because you didn't get to university you didn't life didn't quite go to plan so um I think I hit I hit 30 and I was just like right that's it gotta start making some goals here got three kids they're all alive you know um <laughs> <laughs> alive and thriving um need to sort of make those sort of plans so I do remember making this like five-year goal plan of like by the time I'm 35 I'll have a job we'll do this or something will happen so I've done some training um and I want to apply for enough field and obviously there's been a lot happen in those five years um you know sort of moving farms uh and getting a new job and I was just like do you know what this is I'm 35 this year I have to do it it's sort of I don't want to negate on that sort of goal I made if that made sense um and it almost did seem despite the fact that life's very busy um they do always say if you want something done ask a busy person <laughs> so um it kind of ties in I guess though because what I'm looking at studying is uh, you know I'm involved in it daily it's kind of almost how we've set our business up um for this tenancy which is gonna hopefully you know see us out for the next 20 years and equally through work um, I've, I now work in the dairy sector as well 
which I never thought I'd say. It's, you know, such, yeah, <laughs> it's funny how life takes you on random journeys. And I guess having those paths cross, um, I just saw now was the time. And there's a lot of stuff happening too within the industry and legislation, not just in this country and other countries. And I kind of kept thinking the last couple of years in particular, I kept going, gosh, I wonder if anyone's done going to do my topic you know and I do every year I would look and check who the scholars were and I check all their topics being like oh goodness you know I wonder if my topic is going to get chosen this year so um yeah now or never really I think yeah and here it's, it's a great topic and we will get into it in a second just one question before we do um you said you've always well not always but you've been aware of Nuffield for a while how, how did you first become aware of it um I think it was actually my husband and we were talking because I quite often used to love going and that's the one thing about a contracting business you can be really nosy you can hop on a tractor and you can drive around other people's farms <laughs> and you can, you can meet people and talk to them and see their farm businesses and it was my husband and said oh yeah you do know he's a he's a Nuffield scholar so of course I said well what's that um and and then obviously googled it and found out oh this is really interesting and then some really weird fact that I only found out about uh this year so I come from quite a small town in New Zealand. There's probably a couple of thousand people. They're quite rural. Um, as it transpires, apparently there's been five people from my hometown that are also Nuffield scholars <laughs> from New Zealand. Yeah, I did not know this. Um, I knew I knew one. Um, and then, yeah, it was a friend's friend got in touch and her parents and she said, oh, you do know such and such and such and such have done one too back in the sort of 80s and so, um, yeah, really, really bizarre that was finding that out. But, again, I didn't know. I had no clue about it when I lived in New Zealand. So I only found out about Nuffield um, once I came over to the UK. I mean, it sounds like it was written in the stars. You know, it's like a prerequisite of the village you're from. Eh? Oh, well, do you know what? Funnily enough, my school freak, you know, we always lament, you know, we always sit there and talk about life and how we've got somewhere. And I used to... I suppose I was always quite like, oh, you know, I'm not where I want to be or things haven't happened. And she sent me a message after I got the scholarship and she goes, do you know what, Laura, you're actually where you're meant to be. And just sometimes life will just, you'll just get somewhere and you're meant to be there basically. So don't stop and think that should have happened or that should have happened. I just think you'll get there if that makes sense. So, yeah. When you got your letter, what was the reaction? <clears throat> oh, I cried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I proper cried, Yeah. I, was, I think for me, I was so, I just didn't think I was going to get it. I left that interview room and it was funny because I did see you that day and I thought you were one of the people interviewing. I Everyone has like, said this. <laughs> You're like the fourth person to say that. God. Oh, well, I thought, I thought, yeah, I thought Ethan, he went in before me and then there was a wee break and, um, and I saw you, I think, as I was coming out and I thought, oh, you must be one of the sponsors, um, you know, coming to sit <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I left, I left that interview just being like, oh, it's terrible. Cause I've never had an interview in person like that before. And I think I remember waking up the next morning cause I had to then drive to Somerset cause I had a, um, I had to be there for work. And of course the heating, you know, when you sleep in hotels and the heating's on and it's always hot and you wake up in the middle of the night, I think I woke up at four in the morning and sat up in bed going, oh, Tom Rawson, I have the perfect answer to that question you asked me in the interview. <laughs> By then it's obviously far too late and four in the morning and you should probably just go back to bed. But um yeah, no. <laughs> so yeah, getting the um yeah, getting the letter. And I will say this, like I think there's nothing nicer than getting a letter. Like if it was an email, I think that's just I'm really old fashioned. I quite like I like the fact that you get like a letter in the post and yeah. and even though you gotta yeah. wait for it and like, the suspense almost kills you, um, there's just nothing nicer, I think, than getting something written down on a bit of paper. You know, you actually very impressed me in the interview when I was there as a sponsor. <laughs> but, you know, it's quite funny because, I mean, like, mm. I think when, when Yasmin and I started going out, she just thinks I only ever dressed in fancy clothes because we had, like, three dates in two weeks and they were all me speaking awards ceremonies Exeter. And everyone seemed to think that I'm some kind of professional. That I'm, honestly, the amount of people that have said I was either interviewing, I was a sponsor, I was with someone, whatever, um, is is quite worrying. Because I dress like a trollop ninety eight percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a bit worrying. But uh, the interview. I think was... it's hard. It's it's when we had to do the whole dress code for the conference. I, I felt you know I was quite impressed that other people were also asking dress code because I tend to have either farm slob trollop like 
Yeah. <laughs> or it's the extreme opposite. So that whole middle ground is really awkward, isn't it? You don't know what to wear. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, I'm obviously a lecturer and everyone listening can't hear they can't they can hear me it would be a rubbish podcast if they couldn't uh, they can't see me but this hoodie is something i would wear to work like i don't dress fancy fancy but there's actually some method in the madness when you then have to dress fancy folk are like oh wait a minute <laughs> there's actually a person there it's not just a random toad that comes from under the bridge oh yeah he's, he's that he's that you know he's definitely on this you know the panel yeah he's not <laughs> look at him his suave i think you were wearing your tweed were you wearing tweed i can't remember now but yeah you did look quite quite yeah quite i good. only i only have one suit and it's tweed it's the only one i have <laughs> Uh, yeah i should probably buy a second one in fairness but it's probably going to be tweed as well but i thought the kilt was a bit intense for an interview uh yeah no it was it was nice to get that that sort of letter i mean i, I honest i don't really get much post everything's digital now and stuff but um the only time i remember being that excited for something coming in the post was modern warfare 3 coming out 10 years ago no, like I'm being deadly serious. I live like six miles from the football pitch we all went to at half ten Saturday morning, and it was coming at half ten. It was coming on the Friday, and it didn't come. And then on Saturday, post normally comes about one. Football finished about half twelve. I was making that six mile cycle in half an hour, and no matter how chubby I was for the bike and how uphill it was, it was just I wanted to get back to that Modern Warfare three, and that is how it felt when that came in the post. Uh, so it was really nice. But um, yeah, could you tell us? Tell you sort of touched on it a lot of it. Tell us what your sort of topic is, and I guess why you've chosen it as well. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose my topic. Um, I'm just trying to remember how to word my title, uh, working title, I should say, uh, sure. was. Every calf has a value, but is every calf equal? Sustainable dairy beef production. Uh, so my my topic, I really wanted to be looking at obviously what's the future uh, for dairy beef in the UK. Um, we've got a huge amount of change within the dairy sector and also within the beef sector. And I think quite often within farming, we do we do tend to silo ourselves in our thinking. It's quite often. Um, sort of each industry is almost looking out for themselves. So I, I just think going forward, there's a huge amount of opportunity for so much more collaboration. Uh, and sort of we've got, you know, now's the time, I think, to be making these big decisions that are going to affect everything for the next five to 10 years, if that makes sense. Uh, so I suppose in the UK, uh, from the dairy herd, we have had the calf strategy. So from 2020 to 2023, this came in and this was an industry initiative and it was sort of, working together to sort of eliminate calf euthanasia on farm. So over that sort of three-year period, um, it's now illegal to obviously euthanise any, any bull calves uh, on farm in the UK. But uh, it's also seen a huge rise in sex semen. So sort of about 76, nearly 77% of dairy farms would use sex semen. So the, the issue of black and white bull calves is sort of a non-starter now. And I suppose I've seen that over the... Yeah, over the sort of 12 years I've been rearing, when I first started, I just used to be rearing sheds of hundreds of black and white bull calves that all went on a contract to McDonald's because that was that was what it was. And they're like hen's teeth now trying to find them. Um, so anybody who was doing that sort of old traditional um, bull beef system um, of the black and white, it's quite difficult to find them. Uh, so there's been a huge rise in obviously beef breeds through sort of being used, but there's still challenges. Obviously, we've got... Uh, different breeds, different genetics, different challenges. I suppose Wales and the Southwest in particular, we've got huge TB incidences. And that aids a lot of pressure, I think, on, on dairy producers when you've got, um, you know, TB issues. Your calves are completely devalued. They're worth nothing. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to to have these animals that are just valued at like two pounds or something like that. Uh, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's so, yeah, from that mental health perspective, it's it really challenging. Um, Arla also brought in the Every Calf has a Value rule. So January 21 saw uh, the ruling for Arla. And it's probably about, I would say, maybe 20% of dairy producers must be under an Arla contract. So it's quite, quite a large proportion. Uh, and every calf has to be reared with care for the first eight weeks of life. Uh, life. So obviously nothing can go to early slaughter or the pet food industry. Uh, and again, that kind of almost flooded the market, I guess, with calves that that um, couldn't enter processing. They had to have a home. So for a lot of TV producers, they've actually just gone down the route of sort of uh, building sheds on farm and keeping them on farm and potentially not making a profit on them. But in the terms of that kind of ethical conversation, um, it's probably the ethical choice to do. Uh, but equally, the beef industry is massively changing. Suckler herds are in decline. We're losing basic 
farm payments, um, that's going to have a massive effect, I think, on the landscape of small family farms over the next sort of three to five years. And I just think with the SFI, um, there is a lot of negativity towards it. And I know in Scotland you don't have it yet, and I'm not sure what the devolved governments are doing. But in terms of in England, I think there's huge scope there. I think as, a, as, a, um, as an industry, there's a huge scope to be able to use things like SFI, mixed farming models, integrate livestock more within to sort of arable systems. So is there a potential, obviously, to be integrating more dairy beef production into the UK? So, yeah, just want to be looking at that, looking at the genetics, um, making sure that every calf that is is being born is of value and it is of that highest genetic merit and equally making sure that we have a place for it in the market, I suppose. Um, we've got a lot of challenges in the beef sector. We've obviously got a lovely trade deal with Australia and New Zealand, uh, but there's also the CT. Oh, I can never get this right. It's the CTCPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, that's just also come about. <laughs> You're gonna. <laughs> I spoke about it three episodes ago. One. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I think it's a no. CTCPP. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you know we've got a lot of pressure from beef abroad, and equally also as of next year Ireland are also bringing in the eight-week calf rule, so all dairy farmers are going to have to keep their calves. Um, alive and obviously till eight weeks of age they can't go into any early sort of um, processing and I think what um, yeah Ireland's also got its PGI status for grass-fed beef so there's just you know we've got we've got to be looking at what's happening abroad um, and those challenges I think for the beef sector as well and how we can sort of yeah use that. Did I see that Ireland just got PGI finalized on Irish Angus is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah yeah, I thought that. Yeah, I, when you said that, that just jumped into my mind. Yeah, the the, the Wales TV things. I, I generally have had vets on here that their job is TV. Like that is all they do. Mm. And there's from what they've said and what I've picked up from a few is they're conscious of vets being de-skilled on holistic veterinary because they're so focused on one thing at the minute, which is kind of. I mean, it's Scotland is TB free, but it has TB. Does that make sense? Like TV, yeah. I think less than a thousand. Sorry, less than one per thousand. I believe how it works. So it's not like we see it up here, and we see inconclusive reactors relatively often because I think we can all agree the testing to overhaul. Uh, but um, I just can't begin to fathom how that must feel being in the situation of just this intense, intense TV. You know, it can't be. Yeah. It's not nice, but. Is the, the the payment ones are an interesting one, especially speaking to someone from New Zealand, because before you were born it would have been um obviously subsidy disappeared. Uh, and New Zealand is now a very efficient system when you look at it from a farm farm side of things. It's a it's an interesting one to see what will happen. You know, what will we have a subsidy? How will that look? I think it's gonna be very sort of biodiversity and, and greening based, and I think that's a good thing, but I think they also have to consider that the reason they're there is to produce food as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But on, on your topic, the the whole euthanizing of, and I think that's a nice word to use, in fairness, uh, of of beef calves in that sector was, uh, I know why, but it was just, I'm so glad that's not the case now, you know? Um, and it's also, I, I didn't really know quite, quite the numbers you were talking about there that... <clears throat> Um, we're using sex semen, so yeah, that's that's got to be a good thing. It's got to be. Yeah. I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2 cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. Where, where I do think we've, we've, well, I think, as you say, that we've got to be really careful. And I know Anna, um, who presented this, she had touched a lot on it. And there's also another scholar called um, Sarah Bolton, and she did social license. And I think that's just something that's always going to be increasingly more pressure with, with consumers that's sustainable, but using sustainability with an ethical sustainability. I think we, as farmers, we're probably going to have to look at that a little bit closer. And in the past, I don't think we have. Yeah, yeah. That's true. That is true. Yeah, Anna's Anna's. Uh, do you follow Anna on, in on Instagram? She's brilliant. Yeah. She's hopefully come and talk to students. Actually, um, we do a topical issues module. We really, good. I think Anna's supposed to be coming, which will be good. Um, where do you plan on going? 
Uh, um, oh no, that's it's hard, isn't it? Trying to fit everything in. Um, well, I think now I'm actually going to end up going to Chile just because we are going to Brazil. And I thought, you know what, while you're already over there, you might as well tag some travel on. So um, I've got in touch with a few contacts because there's actually a huge amount of um, beef semen used within dairy herds over there. So, And they also have that challenge, which we have here with our block carving herds of smaller stature cows. Um, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for these block carving herds is these cows that are sort of 450, 500 kilograms. Uh, you know, in the process as I, because of the fact that we, we do use the Europe grid and it is all based on carcass yield, not quality, you've got to hit those minimum specifications. So you're going to need to get that carcass carcass weight up. And I think they obviously have scale in those countries, which we don't. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they're doing. Um, then obviously going to go back to New Zealand and Australia, uh, which sounds silly because I obviously come from New Zealand, but haven't lived there for 16 years and also had nothing to do with the dairy and beef industry before. So it's kind of nice going home actually to learn about sort of a primary industry that your country's famous for uh, and learn a bit more. But yeah, I suppose Fonterra brought in a rule this year where basically all bobby calves couldn't be euthanized on farm. They've also got to go into sort of a, a supply chain after a certain time. Um, so Fonterra, the milk processor brought that in uh, and equally Pamu Farms, so the New Zealand government owned farms, they're kind of, they've got a really interesting strategy of looking towards net zero by 2030, but they want to basically make sure that all their dairy farms by 2030, every beef calf, they're using sex semen only, every beef calf is kept and is being finished because in terms of that carbon footprinting and efficiency, um, they want us want to see it all kind of all, all, all as one basically. Um, so it'll be quite interesting to see what they're doing in terms of their breeding and sort of looking at that carbon footprinting model. Uh, and then Australia, really interested because obviously there's quite a few dairy beef supply chains there and the eating quality, they they are sort of doing trials with dairy cross beef and sort of grass fed. Um, Australia's got completely different grading system that we do in the UK. So obviously they grade on quality. Um, they've also got a huge amount of Wagyu that gets um, sort of exported into Asia. And I know, yeah, Wagyu seems to be creeping into um, the UK markets in terms of sort of semen sales and you'll see the odd Wagyu burgers and Wagyu sausages so I kind of I just want to kind of see how that's going to work in terms of do do we as a country seem to put so much credence on a breed over potentially the eating quality and the genetic merits of something are we relying on that marketing of a breed such as Angus or Wagyu um, over potentially should our premium be the fact that we can produce fast growing beef that tastes what you know tastes good um so yeah there's lots of differences there i think uh so yeah be interesting to see what i can find out there uh obviously then going to go to america uh dairy beef funnily enough hasn't really been a big thing over there and i think it's probably because they do have quite an intensive dairy industry and the average age of lactation um is quite it's quite small um so i guess in terms of ugh, they've always had to have a high number of replacements but as things are changing obviously they can they can afford to have obviously, um, you know, more being served to beef and they're looking at doing some interesting things with stabilizers. But equally, I really, I'm really looking forward to seeing, and this is kind of relating back to that whole um, mixed farming and integrating arable and sort of livestock production. In 2019 at Groundswell, um, I heard Jay Fuhrer talk and he's from Anokan Farms and he was just incredible to listen to and what the research they were doing over there. So I'm really looking forward to being able to go there uh, and see what they've sort of been researching and just looking at that potential because I suppose at the moment we're all being pushed towards yeah carbon footprinting and soil organic matter and so I just think there's a huge amount of potential there for our farming systems to be integrating more livestock into our arable systems so kind of want to learn a lot more about that and how that could obviously um, impact production uh, and then Ireland obviously um, my countries aren't that exciting. Everybody else is going to these really amazing sort of um, incredible destinations. Uh, but yeah, Ireland's obviously got a lot of challenges coming up. They're a huge grass-based sort of um, dairy block carving sort of industry. And this new rule that's coming in next year is going to just, yeah, it's going to be massive how it's going to affect their industry. So being able to kind of go in next year and see what happens on farm and then go back the next year to see how they've coped um, as an industry. And equally, they've also got a lot of pressure on them. Uh, they do, there was quite a big expose where, because they export a lot of calves for the veal industry in Spain, 
and I, you know, live exports, one of those things that's always under scrutiny. So I guess our, our sort of worry is we've got this huge beef producing nation that is literally just over the water. Um, we have to compete with them on the market. So we kind of have to see what they're doing. And they've got this amazing dairy beef um, program with Chagas. Chagas is kind of the equivalent of, I suppose, AHDB over there. Uh, so they have sort of research farms where they are looking at the potential um, growth of sort of these dairy cross beef calves, um, the genetics, and again, sort of doing comparisons of herbal lays, multi-species scores, and sort of looking at that um, potential um, of sort of sequestering carbon, uh, but also performance of the animal as well, which I think is something we're lacking in this country. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it's You mentioned about sort of all the, the sort of weird and wonderful destinations. I was probably guilty of choosing the destination because I wanted to see different cultures and then basing my topic on it. And I was like, I don't want to do the States, Australia, New Zealand. And then I'm like, how can I not do the States? <laughs> um, and New Zealand's kind of in there, to be honest. Um, Australia, not so much for mine, but um, yeah. It, the reason people go there is because they're doing it. <laughs> That's the reason, you know. And uh, you're, you're probably right about sort of I keep saying hopping over from Brazil to Chile. It's probably like a five-hour flight or a four-hour flight. I don't actually know in fairness. But, um, yeah, we're, we're in the middle of, like, essentially the Amazon. Like, it's a huge place. But uh, I, I would have liked to. Um, but I'm just not going to get a chance, I don't think, time-wise. Sort of trying to work it with holidays and stuff is tricky enough. But um, that sounds brilliant. That does sound brilliant. Have you done your study plan and stuff yet? Are you there? Oh, nearly. I've just, yeah, it's, um, I think I'm going to do, I've used Twitter quite a bit sort of messaging people, but I think I might just do a shout out and sort of uh, see, it's because it's amazing, you know, once people know that you're doing this, they just reach out and offer, yeah. offer to help. Um, so yeah, just need to sort of finalize a few things, but equally, you know, we're going to meet all these people in March at this amazing conference. So, um, I, you know, travel plans, and people and contacts, you'll start making them, I think, as you're going. So, you know, you don't want to sort of pin yourself down too much. But, yeah, the spreadsheet is there. It's getting there. Good on you. <laughs> you're good on you. Cause I, I did a study plan. I was just saying this to Tom when I filmed with him an hour ago. I did a study plan before I got accepted. <laughs> uh, just, like, very briefly, like, you know, flights at this point and whatever, and put prices down and stuff. But um, I think I'm going to go down the route of go there – and have a couple of things to do and work around that. I can talk my way into most things. I think that's my plan. And I kind of set myself this weird little goal of I'm going to see if I can not pay directly for accommodation. See if I can sort of see with people yeah. all the time, you know? I reckon you'll be able to get away with that one. You find yourself sitting in a hotel and you're like, geez, what am I going to do? Watch the telly that probably doesn't work. Like, who cares? You know, if you can spend time with someone, Nuffield Scholar or not, you're gonna learn so much more so that's my goal um it sounds really good it does sounds really good and I, i've said this to everyone people probably think oh you're just saying that well it's because you've got to say something at the end of a podcast they do sound good i look forward to following them all i really do uh so yeah hope, hopefully uh, you get what you're looking for and um yeah the travel will be fun as well will you get to go home when you're in new zealand um i'm hoping i've got to pull it all together um hopefully can get over there for time it so i'll be over earlier and then we can do christmas potentially because i actually haven't been home for five years it will be by the end of, yeah four, five yeah five oh gosh yeah we we last went back luckily just before covid happened and then um yeah the country locked down but we because we were we kind of went back 2019 decided we were going to move back to new zealand um applied for a job on a station pedigree angus and um then yeah literally the whole world shut down didn't it so we were kind of like well there goes our plan of moving back to new zealand we'll just um twiddle our thumbs for, <laughs> for a while it was a weird time it really yeah. it really was anyway thank you very much for coming on laura appreciate your time uh, especially when you've got a bit of a sore sore throat and a cough on the go um, <laughs> but if you have listened to a few of these you will have an idea of what's coming there's two questions i ask everyone before i let them go the first one is where you, you had a five-year plan five years ago, so you might have an answer to this. Where do you see yourself in five years? And if you had any tips for people coming into farming, what would they be? Um, oh, the five-year one. I mean, 
yeah, my, I want our loan. We had a five-year loan to get this farm, and I want that completely paid off, all the finances paid off, um, and to be in like quite a secure position within the farm business and like be able to consolidate so we can then potentially obviously invest more. So sounds a really, bo- really boring goal, but yeah, in five years' time, um, it would just be really nice to feel really secure in this business because it's quite difficult almost starting from scratch again um, at this age. You, you kind of almost feel like at this age you should have your, you know, ducks in a row um so yeah that would be quite nice uh and then yeah with work um you know I love my job as well my day job um so still there hopefully and I really would like to start the flower business back up because I also am a florist and have a floristry business so um yeah it'd be quite nice to have potentially started that business up again as well I think brilliant that was a random one to not even touch upon um oh I know yeah I so yeah I went into growing British flowers and I um yeah I was a flowers from the farm member grew flowers did weddings um and it was just another thing I could do on the farm because I was recite it all started with no dig gardening I was recycling the calf milk bags to make no dig beds and use the cow manure and then it just kind of grew from that so um <laughs> that was a previous life <laughs> in a in a completely non self-promotion way because it's only going to get me two views i'm going to direct you to two podcasts i've done i just can't remember what number one of them is one of them's number 77 with ben um what's ben, that's bad. ben cross uh, who is i believe the biggest seller of ultra media in britain british ultra media yeah, so, yeah ben at crossland's nursery i've i've brought direct from ben his favorite my yeah. favorite um ultra media was called rebecca beautiful one looks like custard and cream so <laughs> very nice he, he was do you know what I, I don't think i've ever heard someone on the podcast that could sell what they do so well. <laughs> just like, oh, he's, he's, honestly, he's brilliant. He was one of the best suppliers to work with. He's amazing. I could, I could absolutely believe that. And then the other episode is, uh, let me just find this. I used to know every single number up until 110, but there's too many now. And I just don't remember any of them, to be honest, at this point. Uh, and I've spe- spelt the name of my own podcast wrong on Spotify. <laughs> um, number 83 uh, I assume you know who I'm going to say here when you're talking about no dig. We had Charles Dowding on. Um, yeah, really good episode. And it was, <laughs> if, if you do go and listen to it, both of those episodes are me having no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, both very interesting. But uh, much like yourself. And thank you. Thank you, as I said earlier, for coming on. I hope you've enjoyed it yourself. Yeah, no, it's been yeah, definitely always good to get out of your comfort zone and try something different, isn't it? So definitely, and speaking to a random Scottish guys, definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, thank you as uh, uh, thank you for coming on, Laura. There, good, very much. Looking forward to to March with Denzel, um, which will be an experience for us all. I'm very much sure. Uh, and for those of you listening, that's another of the Nuffield cohort on there today. Um, the last episode we had was with Stevie Nicholl, as we said. Um, if you weren't listening at the start, uh, talking about football, talking about soccer as well, because he's quite quite openly involved in, in, in football. Let's be serious. It's football, isn't it? Because the game they play is hand egg. Anyway, let's not get into it. Uh, so um, that's what we're talking about there. The next episode we have another than Nuffield cohort and Sophie as well. So... Um, lot coming in as I always say well, I don't always say I probably haven't said it in about 15 episodes which is about you know six days at the rate we're uploading at this point um, <clears throat> if you've got any people you want to come on just let me know and um, please don't then get offended when they don't come on straight away because I get quite a lot of my requests about that uh, and we'll try and try and get as many folk on as we can this has been filmed before Christmas um, I'm going to try my, well not my plan I will be filmed up until just the end of January uh, I think we've got I think there's 13 episodes in January, I think. Um, there's quite a few coming, so hope you're enjoying them all. Um, as I said, get in touch uh, if you have any people you want to see on. Follow the sort of social media at Rural to Kitchen if you want to see what's going on the rest of my life. At the minute, it's nothing. Um, <laughs> as Nuffield starts, there's a bit more happening then. Um, and as always, yeah, thank you for coming along, and we'll see you for episode number 172 with uh, Sophie. See you then. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2 cast as much as I have and I would just like to quickly thank our primary sponsors of the show today, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. 
If you follow Howden Rural on social media, you'll see the plethora of work that they do to support this sector, and it's been a pleasure to work alongside them so far, and long may it continue. For more information about them, be sure to check out howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural, and I'll see you for the next episode.